Hello and welcome to Faith in Politics. I'm Rodney. And I'm Meg, and this is the Joint Public Issues Teams podcast. On today's episode, we've got an interview that I did recently with Steve Baker MP, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Wickham and a prominent member of the ERG, the European Research Group. Steve explores his libertarian views, um, his support for Brexit and his opposition to lockdown and brings a really interesting perspective I don't think we've had before on faith in politics of Christian libertarianism, um, a real support for individual freedom. I would say something I really valued interviewing Steve was he was very, very honest, wasn't he? I think often politicians, you get the impression they're only saying a tiny bit of what they think. But I really felt like he was was sharing exactly what he thought with us. Um, And clearly as someone that his opinions, whilst necessarily not kind of publicly held or held by many people, are very, very thought through. He clearly has a, a clear structure to his beliefs um, and yeah, really engages with them. So it was really interesting speaking to someone who spoke quite so candidly and it, it took me by surprise in some ways. Um, so yeah, let's jump into the interview after which Rodney and I will give some thoughts and reflections on it. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Steve, um, Faith and Politics. I'm just going to start with the question that we ask most people which is, how did you become a Christian? Have you always had a faith, or is that something that you experienced um, later in life? Well, thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I discovered Christianity in my teens. Um, I suppose my parents were occasional churchgoers at the time. Uh, I went to Sunday school, but they really wanted me to discover faith for myself. So I was baptised by immersion in the sea at Porth Pian Beach when I was a teenager. Uh, I think it was probably 13 or 14. And my parents had been through divorce, and I think that sort of searching for answers and all that uh, at that upsetting time sort of drove me into it. And I I remember um, even before that, actually, feeling that uh, I'd said the prayer inviting God into my life when I was a primary school kid. And in the last years, somebody gave us testimony and um, and we were invited to pray. And and I I feel that if you do invite God into your life, then he comes and... um, you, you better be sure that's what you want I think so uh, yeah so I uh, it's a bit of a journey largely you know connected with uh, growing up at a, in a time of sort of family trauma but I was very very overjoyed to be baptized and um, it was in the Church of England which is unusual but then fast forward and I found myself going to Spean Baptist Church and happily I because I've been baptized by immersion uh, I, uh, I I qualified for membership with you know without being baptised as it were again if, which I would have had to have if I'd been infant baptised so very serendipitous. Brilliant um, and so you've spoken um, previously about the role of your um, faith in your politics kind of describe yourself as a Christian libertarian um, when you were going into politics what's how what is the main impact of your faith um, on your politics and is it something that you interact with on a daily basis when you're in parliament or is it something that's more you know on the weekends or when you're involved in church? <laughs> well um so I would say, but you know, my Christianity is absolutely central to my life. But equally, I believe it's extremely important that when we take decisions in politics, we do so on a secular basis. What we do, because of course, what we do is enforced on other people. The, the state is the organised instrument of coercion and compulsion. You know, the state sometimes, quite often, ministers will say we're asking people, but they're not really asking people to pay higher taxes. They're taking those taxes on pain uh, of fines and imprisonment. So, you, you know, they're not, we don't really ask, we compel. Um, so I think it's very important when you're compelling people not to base that compulsion on faith. 
there are some obvious conscience issues where you know you've got to live with things forever and your faith's inevitably going to be part of the decision but I, I always think even in those circumstances it's very important to be led by evidence and reason and certainly naive interpretations of the bible are not a good basis on which to coerce others I don't think that witnesses our faith well at all so so on the one hand I am a Christian uh, trying to do my best to be a better one so it informs everything uh, but on the other I try to be secular but I suppose on the way in um I was so fed up with politics, I thought emigrate, moan and, or stand. And I prayed about it. And lots of serendipitous things happened, which is the sort of thing that winds up secular people no end that it's overread. But I'm not going to rehearse all of that. But it meant a lot to me anyway. But one of the things that happened was after I'd given up all hope of being selected as a candidate, I was due to start a think tank called the Cobden Centre. And I had a, a week long conference in Spain. But beforehand, I had a week skydiving and I was waiting to get the connecting flight from the skydiving to the conference. And I got the call then to say, you're all shortlisted, the first 50-50 male-female shortlist. And it was the last possible minute before getting onto the plane. We, they, actually, we, they actually reopened the gate for us as we ran towards it. So I then found myself sitting uh, in the, the, the chapels of Salamanca where the Thomist scholastics wrote the original the systematic thesis, theses on um, society and economics and so forth in, in between the 14th and 16th centuries. And the first speaker was a contemporary scholastic monk who was speaking in Spanish, but his heart was obviously breaking for the poor and he was blaming the state. And, I, and that meant a lot to me. So those that... Salamancan School of Economics today would be recognised as Austrian school liber liberalism. Um, but it meant a lot to me that things happened in that order. Um, and um, a couple of weeks later, I was selected for Wickham at my first attempt. And just a couple of things that are just matters of fact, it was two years to the day after I committed in prayer to try. And when we sat down, it was my first attempt in the area where I wanted to live. And um, when we sat down to see who would go first, I drew lots and we drew lots and I got number one. So I don't know what this, for many people that will mean nothing. For some people that will mean too much. Uh, I just relate to you facts which are true. And I don't really, uh, you know, I, I, I can't draw authority from them. That would that would be quite wrong. But I just observed that is what happened in my life. So I don't know. Yeah, that's really interesting. And. I mean, I thought one of the things from your, again, I said, listen to a Nick Robson um, interview, but as you say, you know, often um, people that don't have a faith will see that sort of stuff as, as daft, but is the reality of life for people that... I actually made a sermon about miracles at Spean Church. I was, a, a, I'm an occasional preacher just because people seem to like what I have to say. I'm not qualified to do it, but people, being Baptist, we're priesthood of all believers, you can do it. So I made a, a, a sermon about miracles based on C.S. Lewis's book with the same title mm -hmm. and uh, drew, drew the, drawing the distinction between miracles of the old creation. In other words, things you'd expect to happen anyway. So things like coincidences and miracles of the new creation, the things that do not happen in this world other than things like the resurrection. And then also thinking about things you can prove, things you can't. And one of the things about it in thinking it all through is that Miracles of the old creation that you can verify. You can say that a thing happened, but you can't prove its cause and it, and it can be wished away. 
or, or, or you know, or just explained away. But miracles of the new creation that you can demonstrate happens are extremely rare. The only two I can think of are the resurrection of Christ and uh, the second coming, which hasn't happened yet. So, but those that, that, that those are epochal defining miracles. So miracles are, I think, very interesting, but you can't live your life on the basis of expecting them. That's for sure. That's definitely true. Um, so I'd be interested to know, obviously, you've spoken about the fact that though you are a Christian, you believe our politics should be secular. And I think a lot of people um, would agree with. Where do you see then the role of the church? Um, you know, you've been involved in the Centre for Social Justice, which has a clear faith kind of dynamic and um, justification. What do you see as a Baptist, um, the role of the church in engaging with politics, especially with like social justice? We should do the stuff that's in the Bible. But what <laughs> this, of course, is all highly contested. A lot of people on the left, if I may say so, often uh, rely on the collectivist instinct in, in acts. But I just point out that even then people died over it. And the long history, and again, I don't wish any offence, but the long history of socialism is that every time it's seriously tried, it results in misery and terrible things. I don't wish to offend, so I won't go into it anymore. But there's a great book called Socialism, the Failed uh, Idea That Never Dies. But socialism just doesn't work, not in this world. And so what I think churches should do is just preach the gospel. Look at the misery we have to go through in life generally. Anyone on social media will recognise it, and especially politicians. The hate, the bile, the wicked assumptions that are made about us. And I would say to churches, first and foremost, preach the gospel. If only a greater number, not even everyone, but if only a greater number of people would at least try to love even their enemies, what a transformational difference that would make. So we've ended up in a position where churches, in my view, churches are asking the impossible. They're asking the state to set society right. But I can hold in my hand this big book called the Bible. And in my view, the Bible is a big story about how coercive power in the law does not set society right. I could read you, read you from Hebrews or Galatians or wherever about, you know, the former regulation was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. So a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And this is not an abstract, purely spiritual thing. The Bible, as people who read it will know, is full of real practical law at the beginning. So the big story of the Bible to me is that God creates the world, gives us the law. We can't even follow Ten Commandments. Moses lived, leads the Israelites out of slavery and all they've got to do really is trust God and worship him. They go off and worship a golden calf. I mean, what on earth? We, we are terribly bad at obeying rules. So I think the big story of the Bible is that the law is never going to set the world right. We need a better hope. The better hope is Jesus. And Jesus gives us by grace the capacity to love even our enemies. So uh, forgive me, I, I sort of, I don't wish to ramble, but... You know, I, I am, I'm afraid, fed up with churches not preaching the gospel because it means I have to do it. It means I have to come on podcasts like this and preach the gospel. And it's hard work if you're a politician preaching the gospel. That's really interesting. And that's definitely an angle I don't think we've had before. So, yeah, thank you for that. That's really but I hope people won't mind me saying, listening to this, God bless them, but there's no point coming to me asking me to be a socialist. I'm not going to be a socialist. I think socialism produces misery and mass murder because that's the historical record. It is not of God in my view. And God bless you, Meg, because I know you have somebody on the left. But people on the left are very kind-hearted people, but they keep picking up the wrong tools. And the right tool is to love our neighbour, 
and do things which work. And the thing which works is freedom under the rule of law. And I'd say to people, have a look at 1 Samuel 8. The Israelites turn away. They want a king. The Israelites want a king. And, they, and God explains to Samuel that it's not Samuel they've rejected. It's, it's God himself. They've chosen to have kings instead of to live under the rule of God and do what's right. So anyway, I'm, I'm pretty settled, as you can tell, in my views as a Christian libertarian. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. And you touched on it briefly there, that as um, a politician, you know, talking about faith isn't always the easiest. Is that something that you found in your time as an MP has, um, you know, you've been criticised for or people have charged you on? Or is it something within the well, party people? I are suppose there? we'll see how this podcast lands. But my first television appearance as an MP was talking about my faith. And I got away with it. It went fine. And I've always avoided all the landmines. You know, Paul Brand for ITV interviewed me about it. And he naturally has strong views uh, um, about LGBT plus issues and asked me a lot about that. And again, I gave answers which I'm satisfied which, with and he seemed to be satisfied with. And I think that's where things go wrong. And I think on that point, I think where Christians in public life get into trouble is for some reason they keep obsessing about sexuality. I mean, God loves us who we are and where we are. And unfortunately, Christians too often end up witnessing Christianity incorrectly as if it was obsessed with sexuality. Mm -hmm. One of the notable things about Jesus teaching is when he was confronted with sexual sin, the adulterous woman, he said that he is without, uh, without sin cast the first stone. And actually he was remarkably I wouldn't say permissive, that's not quite the right word, but he was remarkably forgiving. He just sort of took it for granted. But so, and that was even, that was even on the specific issue of adultery. So when it comes actually to a much more nuanced issue, uh, like people's sexuality, I would say to people, just let it go. And again, I don't often like to say speaking as a Baptist, but I believe in this doctrine of soul competence. Yeah. And it seems to me as a Christian in politics, there are two acceptable ways to answer these difficult landmine questions like sexuality. You either do it my way, which is to say, I believe in soul competence and your sexuality is a matter for you and God. And it's and I'm not here to judge you. Actually, I wish to welcome you and, and witness my love for you. Or you do it the Roman Catholic way, which is to say this is the doctrine of the church and I'm a Roman Catholic and I'm therefore adopting the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And then at least when people vote, they know what they're getting. Yeah. But you, you've got to, I think where people get it wrong is they try to go up the middle mm. and have a view, but they haven't, but it's not backed by the doctrines of their church. So um, we just, in the end, it's very simple. We should love one another love God, love one another, and that includes even our enemies. So why on earth we end up failing to witness love to LGBT plus people, I, I don't know. That's really interesting, thank you. On a, moving more on to your kind of career as a politician, yeah. you spoke about one of the main reasons you went into politics and became an MP, what was Brexit? Um, it was, you know, frustration at the European Union. Um, and you said, again, this is a Nick Robertson interview, I sh should have listened to other things, but you know, that you'd rather, almost rather be engineering back, um, doing your work before you became an MP. Now Brexit, obviously it's not finished and it's an ongoing process, but now that is not the single kind of main issue that our parliament is dealing with. What do you see your role and your priority as an MP, um, if that was one of the kind of founding issues that you went into politics based on? Well, the founding issue in a sense, it wasn't so much Brexit, is that we weren't being given a vote on the constitution for Europe. And it was a constitution for Europe. And it became the Lisbon Treaty, but it became the Lisbon Treaty in order to avoid us having a vote on it. 
And I'm afraid that to me is, an, in a sense, was a, a mortal sin. And we had, you, you can't assemble a new government without asking the public's permission at the ballot box. It's wrong. And what, one of the things that's frustrated me is that people just can't see that. But, but there we are. I was naive to think that they would when I set out a long time ago. So, I mean, now my absolute priority is to do one of the other things I set out to do, which was to, is to try and be the sort of MP that I wish that I'd wished I had one who actually cares about its constituents. So I do try to do that. Now, one or two people who get an email response that isn't quite what they agree with or a bit slower than they'd like uh, won't recognise this in me, but I can assure even them I'm trying awful hard with my staff to just serve the public. That is the first priority. That's what we're here for. Uh, so there's going to be a, a, an R plan for Wickham agreed with councillors, and I will be seeking to deliver about five or six priorities for Wickham, things like um, investment in our NHS, sorting out our roads and pavements because they're a mess and it matters in people's lives every day, recovering from coronavirus with schools and so on. And then I'll have about five other projects nationally, which I'll work on. So things like the work I've done on equality and anti-racism, which I was in the news for last week. And I think, again, that's obviously driven profoundly by Christianity. You know, have a, again, Galatians 3. So um, some stuff on that, the cost of net zero. And I think even people who are very, very worried about carbon dioxide ought to be able to agree with me that how we get to net zero should be economically and politically viable using existing technologies. Because if it's not economically and politically viable, it's not going to happen, however much you care about it. So what I'm trying to do is tease out of the government those what we are, what changes we're actually going to have to go through, what it will cost, and try and get public consent for it. Otherwise, we'll have a political disaster. So all of those sorts of things, more on trade policy, more about prosperity. I'd love to get back to the social justice stuff I did with the CSJ, yeah. um, but you've got to prioritise. So you've actually already touched on one of my next questions, which was going to be about the um, statements you've been in the news recently about regarding the euros and people taking a, a knee, the knee. Yeah, take um, and there was a kind of quote from you, which was um, that the Conservative Party is at risk of misrepresenting their own heart for people who suffer injustice. And to me, that really sounded, I could see as a Christian, the faith under element of it that maybe someone who doesn't have faith might not. And so one of the questions is going to be, you know, the Conservative Party hasn't been seen by many people to be tackling this issue particularly well. And in, you know, during the Euros, drew a lot of criticism. Um, what did you mean by that? And how would you ideally, as Christian and just as a Conservative MP, have your party tackle it better to you know, not misrepresent it? Part? Yeah, so it was a Christian thing to say. And uh, um, I absolutely had my, I was, oh, I'd like to think whenever I do something that I think is going to run hot in the media, I think about, think about it and, and try to at least test it through the lens of a Christian lens. Sometimes I have to do things to get a campaign to work, which, uh, uh, perhaps a slightly uncomfortable, but um, so I, obviously it was it was a Christian thing to do. But the party, the party should always be thinking: how will this be heard by other people? Um, so you know, the tearing down of statues is a criminal offence and shouldn't be done. It's criminal damage. But people do object to statues because they remind them of slavery. And I, you know, I, I I've said told this story in the Commons of being with a lady who uh, has an English name, but who is Caribbean, African Caribbean. And she said to me, you know, every time I, I said to her, I'd asked, I said, you know, forgive me, but why is Black History Month so important to you? 
And there was this really awkward pause. And she said, every time I write my name, see my name, say my name, hear my name, I am reminded I am descended from slaves. Well, if you're white British, you've got to make a positive effort to think that other people might possibly be living with that. Now, that's not to say that everybody who's non-white is burdened by that. It's just to say that when we speak and think and do things, we should bear it in mind. So on the one hand, fans are absolutely entitled, as many have told me, to want no politics whatsoever at football matches. They want to go to the football for the football and the football is an escape from these things in life, these difficulties. So they're entitled not to want politics there. But equally, we should think how it is perceived. If somebody's getting down on a knee to protest that they suffer racism, then to boo them, anyone should think, how is this going to be heard? And it's, it, it shouldn't be done. So I, um, the whole business of that uh, and my whole motivation for this is about the Christian one, uh, that we're all equal before God. I can say that in this podcast. We're all equal before God. We're all equally sinful and equally in need of God's saving grace. So to draw distinctions between anyone over colour is uh, quite wrong. And um, it must end. So, you know, I think, so to come to the point you made about Tories, I think the Conservative Party is very practical and pragmatic and rushes forward day by day with the sort of plumbing issues that are before it. Uh, And I suppose I'm just appealing to my colleagues to be a bit more connected I know my Conservative colleagues do care about injustice and do care about these issues, but we're not very good at, in a sense, breaking our heart for the poor. And uh, I think we need to be a bit better at that. Thank you. That's really interesting. And I think for a lot of people, that's like quite a relief to hear somebody say that it's not always often that said, sadly, by politicians. Um, My final question would be, obviously, um, as a libertarian, um, as someone that's publicly spoken out a lot against um, lockdown and some of those measures, See, Freedom Day, Freedom Day was on Monday. Um, how, how, how do you feel that slightly? That's not quite the right question. But as someone who had been calling for the measures to be um, lessened and kind of released, did it feel like a Freedom Day? Um, and, you know, was that what you were hoping for? No, it didn't feel like Freedom Day. And I would never have called it Freedom Day either. Yeah. Um, but I suppose on the positive side we are now doing much more what I wanted which is to lay before the public the situation and ask them to be responsible and we should wish to live in a society of free and responsible individuals but you know cases are soaring and that is a matter of some worry I see today on the Zoe app in Wickham that we seem to be over a peak but that doesn't mean we're really over the peak it could come back Um, but it is a very worrying time and I know it will be a very worrying time for people who have been vulnerable to the disease without vaccination. But I would just say to them, the vaccines are clearly working. And we have got to get on with our lives. We cannot live forever with an economy propped up with measures which can be only paid for by the Bank of England creating new money. That is the route to destruction. That creating money on this scale in this way is the sort of thing which destroys civilizations. And I mean that dead seriously. The forces that it unleashes in society are monstrous and destructive. And we, that there is no future to be had living on QE, quantitative easing, money creation. So we've, we've got to get on with our lives and learn to live with COVID like we live with flu. And we've also got to narrow our focus. We've had this terrible tunnel vision just on the disease. 
But what about kids who've missed out children who have missed out on education? What about people who've lived in bedsits or flats without an outdoor space? And, and on and on it goes. So that's, there's an enormous amount to be done to recover from this disease, but God willing, we shall. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. That's all my um, questions. And it was really, really interesting. I, I really enjoyed that. And it's, I, it's always really interesting, as you say, I work for a Labour MP, but to hear very clearly how, even though you can have diff different political opinions, you know, the same threads of justice and of, you know, loving your neighbour and can be like very clearly in political opinions that differ massively. Well, Meg, thanks very much. But, you know, if I wasn't motivated by a heart for the poor and a sense of justice, then I wouldn't be following what's in the Bible. The question that's at stake in politics, and I think this is where Christians depart, it's what is the role of the law in compelling people in order to achieve Christian aims? And I think the Bible itself teaches it, teaches us that though the law is given by God and should be obeyed, yeah. it's not going to work. And if it's not going to work even when given by God, and God had to choose another way, who are we to keep going back to an old failed way that even God has given us an escape from? So that was the interview that Meg had with Stephen. Like we said earlier, it was such an interesting and engaging one. I'm sure you've been left with many questions. I found him incredibly sincere, especially in regards to the role of government for him and the role of the church. Um, he acknowledges that we're required and we should be involved in social justice, but then also says that we need to preach the gospel and was quite adamant on that. And yeah. I think it's something that's quite true. But I, I don't see how we can't do both of them at the same time. And it's definitely yeah. something we should continue to do and preach the gospel. Um, so he won't be coming on podcasts like ours and preaching the gospel, as he said. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it's, it's very interesting because I think it alludes to maybe the church not doing its job or fulfilling this responsibility in terms of the gospel. How did you see that? I think it's interesting. I think it is something that you hear, especially in more conservative kind of churches, that the church simply should be preaching the gospel. And obviously that is fundamentally the job of the church. But I would say that preaching the gospel is good news to the poor, as well as so many other things. And how can we be good news to the poor? I take an approach that that isn't just good news spiritually but that's also good news materially that's also liberating people both you know from from spiritual chains and oppression but also from material oppression um, advocating for the vulnerable materially as well as coming alongside them as community spiritually um so I think I don't disagree with what he he said but I, I think it's a bit unfair to suggest that people aren't preaching the gospel I find Steve's um kind of the relationship that he sees between faith and politics, the name of our podcast, really interesting because he makes it really clear that he believes politics should be secular and should be kind of conducted on a secular plane, which I think I would agree with in that, you know, the UK, um, Great Britain is a, is a secular country largely um, and therefore our politics should be conducted on the same. On the other hand, he identifies as a Christian libertarian, which is... A, a political belief that is inherently linked to his faith. So I think the almost paradox of that is really interesting. He talks in the in the interview 
basically suggests that part of his reasoning, part of his kind of libertarian belief in a small state and a free market is the fact that the biblical in the biblical narrative, the law fails, right? He says, let me find the quote. Um, I think the big story of the Bible is that the law is never going to set the world right. And we need something more, and that something more is Jesus. And whilst I think we would agree from a faith perspective, um, it's really interesting to see someone who believes that politics should be conducted on a secular playing field to suggest that part of the reasoning that he opposes the law um, and a big state is because of the biblical narrative. I mean, I would suggest that's slightly disanalogous in that, you know, the narrative we see in the Bible is about God's relationship with his people, whereas the role of the government and the law in, in the UK, you know, in, in our present time, Westminster doesn't exist to facilitate a relationship with God for us. It exists to, you know, facilitate our country running peacefully and its people kind of prospering, in inverted commas. Um, so I think that's a really interesting belief. It's very clear that his his politics and his faith are so inherently intertwined. Um, but yeah, I find the place that, that comes to quite confusing um, and almost quite messy. I think it, it was equally an interesting point. Um, he ended the interview with a, a really intriguing question. And I think he asked, what is the role of the law in compelling people in order to achieve Christian aims? And I kind of understand where Steve was coming from in him creating that demarcation between um, faith and politics and not necessarily allowing it too much to um, influence his politics because if we're looking at it objectively, genuine faith can't be forced. Um, people will never have that feeling. There's a level of individual will and liberty that people are allowed to express and that lends itself to more of reason. And within that, the political sphere is a arena for reason more than Jesus and our personal faith. And when it can't be forced, you just have to allow people to go on their individual liberties and reason and will based on how they think. I think it's confusing because it almost his beliefs seem to both almost suggest both that there should be a separation, that the church should preach and the politics should politics. But also he holds opinions that are so inherently intertwined that you can't have one, you know, it doesn't work if one does the other. We were discussing earlier, does Christian libertarianism work in a secular society or does it revolve upon everybody following Jesus? Arguably it, it does. I find it confusing. I mean, I understand that it's a significant, it's a, a set of beliefs that many people hold, but I find it really interesting that, you know, libertarianism fundamentally believes that individuals should be left to their own devices to make their own informed decisions, that they are best equipped to decide for themselves as compared to the state. Whilst our faith, obviously we believe people are capable of altruism and people can make good choices and look out for another, but also do believe that, you know, we all make mistakes and we all can be selfish and that we're all inclined often to look out for ourselves, um, even though we can do the opposite. So I think it's a really interesting, interesting relationship to suggest that people should be left fundamentally to make their own choices, but also to be aware that they often don't make brilliant choices. But I guess that then, I almost sound quite conservative saying that, because that almost sounds more like the more paternalistic kind of Disraelian, we need to look out for people because people make bad choices, which obviously isn't my, 
isn't my political conviction. But it depends though. How do we look at it biblically? Old Testament speaks about free will, choose life that you may live or choose death. And that element of free will is always in the life of a Christian. And I think that's what some politicians that hold their faith take into the political arena, that belief in the free will of the individual to make their decisions. And it can be biblically backed up. I think for me, it's just a situation whereby I think that individuals are rational and the law does a play a part in influencing how we behave. The facts are that we've had the Ten Commandments and we've had previous laws and they've not been able to determine our, our behaviour because we tend to disobey them. But they somewhat act as a guiding principle for justice and what is seen as moral within society. And the issue isn't with the law, it's with our ability to follow it. So the law itself isn't something bad, it's just that we're pretty rubbish sometimes at adhering to them. And I don't think that means we should bin off all laws, that means we should kind of examine how how people follow them. Um, because I do think, you know, Steve draws the example, we failed to follow, you know, in the Bible, people can't even follow the Ten Commandments, they're really simple, it's only ten things. You know, love no other God other than me is a very different rule to follow than in the UK, I don't know, pay your council tax and drive on the right side of the road. Um, I mean, people find all different things hard to follow. But to suggest that because, you know, the Israelites failed to to not worship other gods, that British people are incapable of, you know, not fly tipping, I think feels a bit reductive. Not that that's necessarily what Steve's saying. Steve also spoke about on the taking of the knee and I'd have to say that his response to it has been incredibly thoughtful and I think he's actually not to criticise the party too much but I think he's but hit to criticise the party. Go on. Not to criticise the party too much, but to criticise the party. Um I think they ought to listen to him more because I think he's struck the right tone in regards to um taking the knee and racism and I think he was very sincere and open with the realities that maybe the party haven't as he put it necessarily come to the place where they're able to break their heart on issues like this and I think that's something that not only like the conservative party but even the church can look at because it's a working process now for um, us in terms of how we deal with racial justice and how we speak out against it and I think it was a reflection of that it's a societal issue but also something that we can look inwardly also and reflect on. Yeah and I think that was actually probably the area that, that Steve's faith most clearly kind of came, came to the top of his politics. The quote that he was in the news for was this um was that the Conservative Party had failed to show their heart for those affected by injustice and I think that is so clearly a statement that comes from I mean even just the language is Christian you know showing your heart um but that sentiment that that actually we should prefer the other and that we should prioritize the the vulnerable and those that have suffered injustice 
I just think it's really interesting. Many people, me included, would not see our Conservative government, I mean, okay, my we all know what our different political beliefs are, but would not say that the Conservative government puts first those that have suffered injustice. Arguably the opposite. So I think it's really interesting that Steve on this issue is taking a stand and saying, actually, we do need to do that. Um, I think it's really good, but it then makes me question, well, if you're willing to do that now, why don't you do that when it comes to, you know, questions of the welfare state or questions of international aid funding, which he didn't support? Um, you know, he supported the government's cuts to international aid. But then on the other hand, should we be applauding him for taking a stand on this issue? I think it's natural that politicians won't always be on the right or wrong side of the argument every time. I think that's the nature of politics. We all have different opinions. Yeah, Steve definitely brought a really interesting, different perspective to the podcast, something we've not heard before. And honestly, I think something that most of us don't necessarily agree with, but it is so interesting to me every single time to see how people can hold, you know, can have such an important faith. Their faith can be such a, a central element of their lives and yet reach such fundamentally different opinions of which they are entirely convicted. It's amazing. It will never cease to not amaze me. Um, and I think it's really humbling because it reminds us that, you know, I can be entirely convinced that someone is completely wrong and they'll be entirely convinced that I'm also wrong. Um, and there is definitely something humbling in that. Dear Lord, we thank you each of us holds within our hands the transformative power of the Spirit so that we might be opened up to a new way of being in these challenging days. A way of being that opens us up to the love that is the mystery we call God. Today and in the coming weeks and months ahead, may all our fears be transformed into compassion so that we may be love in these ever-changing moments. May God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression and exploitation of people, so that we may work for justice, freedom and peace. May God bless us with the tears to shed for those who suffer from rejection, hunger and war and racism so that we may reach out our hands and comfort them and turn their pain into joy. Amen. So guys, very sad news. This is actually my last ever episode of Faith in Politics. Rodney's only going to be around for another one or two, but I am moving on from JPIT, very sadly, um, onto a new role. Um, I will be listening in anticipation for Rodney's next episode. He might even get me on. Maybe he'll let me feature in some small capacity. I really hope so. Um, but it has been an absolute joy to be involved. Um, it's been really eye-opening and I've learned a massive amount um, from so many people, some of whom, you know, I already thought I believed everything they already said and other people who I probably would have ran a mile from in any other context. Um, so, yeah, it's been a real honour and a joy and it's been even more of a joy to do it with you, Rodney. So make sure you follow us on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram, and you listen out for our next episode of Faith in Politics podcast.